I, uh, I didn't know they were going to be playing a tape of one of Dr. King's two most famous sermons. I've always wanted to preach after him. <sighs> it's uh, been one of my lifelong dreams, so you could see who is better. <laughs> Today I'm reading from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. As for you, you are dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed in, well, I'm 11. I started at 1. I'm starting at 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the human body by, body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are built, being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. In today's text, Paul says two profound things happened on the cross the day Jesus was crucified. The first is that the barrier that separated from us from God was torn in two. You see, on that cross, Jesus not only rent the veil in two, but he tore down the dividing wall that was at the courtyard that separated Jew from Gentile and also excluded women and also excluded slaves. You see... Jesus not only died so we could get close to God, he died so we could get close to each other. There are now no first or second class citizens in the house of the Lord. Historic divisions have come to an end. Jesus died so a whole new kind of temple could be built to house his glory, and we are the living stones. Because of him and because we are in him, there are no longer any foreigners, just family. No longer any aliens, just brothers and sisters. In him, God is now building a temple with all kinds of stones, black and white, red and yellow, young and old, male and female, rich and poor, American, Mexican, African. He is creating a rich tapestry out of all kinds of cloth, all kinds of material, all kinds of people, and it is beautiful. It reflects heaven itself where people from every tribe and tongue and ethnic group and nation are waiting for the church to fulfill its destiny. Heaven is watching us. Every time we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, we are praying for diversity, for the temple to be built as God designed it. 
based on this biblical truth, based on what Jesus died for by abolishing in his own flesh that wall, that dividing wall, the church of Jesus Christ should be the most beautiful, the most diverse, the least racist group of people on this planet. Unfortunately, it's almost the other way around in North America. We are on a large scale the most segregated group in North America. As Dr. King said, 11 o'clock is the most segregated hour of the week. Educational institutions, business institutions, government institutions have more diversity in them than does the church of Jesus Christ. Somehow evangelicals and fundamentalists have lost the second thing for which Christ died. Somehow we think that this verse doesn't apply to us. In fact, we should be leading the way in diversity. Not because of political correctness, not in some effort to be modern, not because we want to be on the cutting edge of social change. We should be leading the way because Jesus died to make us diverse yet one. Why should we care about this? We should care about this because it is the will of God. And since when did the will of God become unimportant to us? We should work on this because the spirit is quenched to some degree if the church ignores the second part of what happened on the cross of Jesus. Diversity and oneness is the heart of God revealed from the cross, made possible by the cross. Now I know what some of you are saying. Oh God, I don't want to hear this stuff again. If I'm going to be biblical, you need to hear this stuff again. Because without it, you get rid of the good parable of the Good Samaritan, which was cross-culture. You get rid of Jesus talking to the woman from Samaria at the well. You get rid of the entire book of Acts, which talks, it's not just the Holy Spirit coming into the world and the church growing. The church had to diversify in order to grow over and over and over. If you get rid of the issues and the letters written to deal with diversity. You get rid of First and Second Corinthians. You get rid of Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, Revelation, and so on. And it doesn't even start with Jesus in the New Testament. Remember when Abraham was called? God said, I, you know, I will make you a blessing to all nations and to all peoples. It's not just for Israel. And, and again, Isaiah says, that a day is coming that at God, God's temple will be a house of prayer for all nations, for all peoples, for all ethnic, ethnic groups. And you know why most people, especially evangelicals and fundamentalists, don't seem to care about this? I'll tell you why. Because most of us don't even see racism. It's not real to so many people. It's not a part of our everyday experience. To talk about racism to most white folks almost like, sounds like, you're, like a fairy tale. After all, haven't laws been passed? Didn't the civil rights movement succeed? Aren't there hate laws and affirmative action on the books? Yes, that's all true. But a lot of what happened after these events is that racism went underground. It didn't go away. And now it's becoming public again because they invented smartphones. And people are looking and going oh, on, at the news going, oh, my gosh, how could this be happening again? I have news for you. It never stopped. What's different is exposure. And just because something is law 
doesn't mean the law is enforced. Another reason churches and Christians veer away from God's heart is on, on this issue is because it's scary and it's difficult. It's scary because it's a subject where there's a lot of ignorance and we don't like being ignorant. It's difficult because feelings are raw in this area and we're afraid things will explode. And you never know when you're going to step on a landmine. White folks don't want to be labeled racist, but black folks don't want to be labeled as professional victims of some other stereotype. Please hear me on this. I'm not preaching on what I'm preaching to shame white people or make them feel bad. I like white people. Some of my best friends are white people. <laughs> so I said, oh, Lord, that's right. And you see, folks, shame and guilt and fear don't work in the long term. You can't shame somebody into loving somebody. You can't scare somebody into loving somebody. Our main motivators for following Christ sooner or later, we have to move from shame and fear into love. And the same is true with each other. You cannot shame anybody. White people don't have to stop being white, by the way, as if we could. We just have to own that there's a problem in this country and it's not going away. So our job as white Christians is to own the problem, learn about it, confess it, repent of it, and become champions of racial reconciliation in the name of Jesus. Because if we stay stuck in shame and guilt and fear, here's what happens. If you're stuck in shame and guilt and fear, you're either going to run away from the problem, you're going to be paralyzed in the face of the problem and not know what to do, or you're going to resent the people you think are shaming you. And none of those steps help. Guilt only polarizes and paralyzes us. And that does no one any good. It's time to start healing the problem, not wallowing perpetually in guilt and shame and fear. Amen? Amen. That is what we're called to do. And the truth is that for most of us, we don't deal and won't deal with racism until it becomes personal. You know when it came, became personal to me? When I became not just the pastor of, but the friend of people in this congregation of color. When I saw my friends, my brothers and sisters in Christ being treated unfairly and unjustly simply because of the color of their skin. When I listened to their stories about incidents at work and at school or simply driving a car, minding their own business, and in a whole variety of places, it moved me. And the amazing thing to me is that as I listen to the large majority of these stories, I sense no hatred and no bitterness from the people telling me these stories. Just ongoing frustration and pain and often a weariness about when will all this racial stuff end. When you become friends with someone of color and they really let you in, and you see the world through their eyes and feel their pain, suddenly the sin of racism is not some abstract academic subject. It is not some political football to kick around. It is you are watching people be hurt by injustice, and it gets to you because someone or something is, is hurting someone you care deeply about, and suddenly this stuff hits you in the gut. 
when I watch stuff on TV, when I hear stuff, it, it gets to me. That's why we need to be intentional about taking racial reconciliation classes in this church and befriending people, you know, from, the, from, the, from other ethnic groups. I mean, that's why on Wednesday night we're going to do Sarah Shin's Beyond the Color Line. And I'm so glad so many of you are buying this book even if you can't come to the class. Because if we're not intentional about this, it, what is natural will take over. And what is natural is us versus them. That's why it's important to be in each other's homes or eat together or spend time together over a cup of coffee because at some point, people who are them must become us. And, when they, be, and they only become us when we share our lives together. Friends, real friends are no longer those people. Neighbors are no longer them when we get to know each other and pray and wrestle with the problems together. I'm, uh, I'm streamlining. <laughs> I'm editing as I go. I'm sure Dr. King did. Anyway, what I'm here to say is that reconciliation is not easy. It cost Jesus his life. It took a cross for him to bring us together. And I've got news for you. It will take a cross for us to bring things together too. It will take humbling ourselves and learning and saying to God, your will be done. It will take us going into places that are uncomfortable for us and talking about subjects that are uncomfortable for us. But Christ is building a temple and every piece matters. Every stone matters. We are called to fit together so God's glory can be revealed in this place. We as a church will do our best to provide a safe place in terms of reconciliation and people talking together. But nothing is more beautiful than God's people dwelling together in unity despite all the dividers the devil and the world have set up. No testimony is more immediately evident than that God is up to something when you start looking at different people who look different from each other. I want to read something from Sarah Shin's book. She said that um, my church, where men, the majority of the attenders are people of color, went through a Forgive Us series where the pastors preached about the ways the church had contributed to racism against minorities and sexism against women. Dave, a white pastor, listened to the ways the church had used the Bible to argue for slavery and the racist ide ideology of white superiority. And he said, on behalf of white Christians, I am so sorry. John, a biracial white and Korean pastor, listed the ways the church and men had contributed to sexist and demeaning attitudes towards women. And he said, on behalf of Christian men, I am so sorry. When these men asked for forgiveness, some congregants were stunned. Others began to weep. Many people of color said, I have never heard a white man, a white pastor, so directly confront white supremacy and apologize before. Many women said, I had never heard a male pastor apologize so specifically for paying calls to women. This powerful experience spoke not just to the Christians, but also to the non-Christians in attendance. Iranian and Chinese people were stunned to see leaders with power owning their sins of the past and asking for forgiveness. 
For them, such humility communicated something different about Christianity, compelling them to seek Jesus. It was beautiful to see them come closer to becoming Christians. And in the months after, we saw new believers and committed seekers say yes to following Jesus Christ because of what happened in that service. So let me echo this. Because I want every person of color and every woman one time in your life to have a white male up in a pulpit say these words to you. I am so sorry that people like me have hurt people like you. I am so sorry for what your ancestors went through. I am so sorry that the playing field is not leveled yet and the pain you go through. And to women who have endured unequal treatment and still do, to women in churches across America who still can't even be a leader or a teacher or a pastor, I say I am so sorry. I am so sorry. It is not fair and it is not right. And I'm hoping here in this church we are modeling something different for you. I wanted one time in your life to say, I saw a white pastor acknowledge that. This past week, we heard racist and demeaning language from the President of the United States. People from Haiti and Africa were from feces holes, according to him. And why couldn't we have more immigrants from Norway, one of the whitest nations on earth? And this was said before the MLK weekend. Unfortunately, President Trump's comments represent millions of Americans. The problem did not start with him. And the problem will not end with him. And I agree with Sheila. I, our job is not to hate President Trump. Our job is to pray for him and pray for his heart. Because what scared me about what happened was not his vulgarity. To be honest, I'm not perfectly clean in that area myself. And it's, but the sentiment under those words are of great concern. But even more so was that during when these words were said, that he was lobbying for America's policies to be based on those kind of sentiments. No, 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 no. Let justice roll down like a river. And I don't like to talk about politics from the pulpit. Because if I preached against all the stupid things politicians say and do or don't do, I'd be preaching I wouldn't never get around to the gospel anymore. Politicians are, you know, except for Patty Kim, politicians are idiots. <laughs> I'd never get to preaching the gospel in the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of Christ is bringing. Plus, I don't want to always be reactive to the world. The world is the world, and it acts like it. The world's screwed up and crazy. I can't be chasing the world by the tail every week from the pulpit. My job is to talk about the kingdom of God as an alternative to the world. But every now and then, every now and then, lines cross. And the words I heard that were said this week could not have hit this church more directly than they hit them this week. To the people from Africa here in this sanctuary, I am sorry for the pain and fear inflicted on you this week. 
all of us, Republicans and Democrats and independents like myself, I am sure we share the same sentiment, right? This is not a political issue. This is bigger than that. And to Elias Joseph, who is Haitian and is on our church board and who teaches people how to manage money and his sister who is visiting from Haiti, I am sorry for the ugliness of this past week. We have in this church now people from 10 African nations as well as Haiti. We have 28 different ethnic groups and nationalities that attend this church. We have the Mbus and the Musilis who attend this church from Kenya. We have the Fumis and the Noise from Ghana. They're right there in the back every Sunday laughing at my terrible jokes. We have Felistus Fumi from Zambia. We have Diane Green from South Africa. We have a fellow named Hank Johnson. Hank Johnson, that rings a bell. Oh, yeah, he's going to be the next senior pastor from Liberia. Tiame and Goitam and Mazgana, who attend this church, are from Eritrea. Sheila Ngu and Roger and David and Clarice are from Cameroon. John Hawbecker's granddaughter, who participates in some of our events, is from Ethiopia. What's her name? Zariah. Write that down for me, and I'll get it. Okay. We have the Sihas from Egypt. We also have Brethren in Christ missionaries all over Africa. In Rwanda, Zambia, Zimbabwe, Malawi, Mozambique, Botswana, Kenya, South Africa, and Burkina Faso. And by the way, there's a whole lot more Brethren in Christ in Africa than there are in America. And by the way, while Christianity is almost dead in Europe and it's dying in America, it is thriving in Africa. And so, I want to say this. I want this to, to our Haitian and African brothers and sisters here today. I want you to know you are our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we stand with you. Do you agree? Just... We're, we're just getting started. Stay standing. <laughs> we are glad you are here. Do you agree? We do not demean where you are from. Do you agree? And we know a person's character and intelligence and spirituality is not but determined by where they come from anyway. Do you agree? Yes. I'm here to tell you what you already know, that the politicians of this world do not determine your worth. Jesus Christ determines your worth. And we, and we acknowledge your worth to him in the kingdom of God this morning. 2,000 years ago, Jesus demolished 
the dividing wall between us on the cross. You can sit down. Go ahead. I like you standing there and applauding, but it's not good for my soul. Anyway, our job is to walk through the rubble of that demolished wall that Jesus tore down 2,000 years ago and embrace each other. Because the world is segregated, but we're to be united in him. The world is hateful, but we are loved totally by him. The world is racist, but we are a new humanity, Paul says, created to be part of the house he is building, filled with the Spirit, in love with a Savior. I have good news for you today. We are the light of the world. And we need to shine in the darkness. We need to show the world how the kingdom operates. And that starts by loving each other, getting to know each other, praying for each other. It also starts, I think, by praying for the church in America to rise up and being a part of the problem and start being a part of the solution. And I think it honestly does mean praying for our government and for our president, praying in love, but pray and, you know, acting like Christians. <laughs> and I also think it means that we may need to uh, make our voice heard, write a few emails to a few politicians, if you know what I mean, in a Christian way. <laughs> I'll tell you something else if you want some creative ideas. A woman named Beth at Grantham said after this week, she said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to start sponsoring as a response, I'm going to start sponsoring a child in Africa through um, something. <laughs> and, and she said, and I'm going to contribute money to ministries in Haiti. Something we're going to do, I'm taking executive privilege on this. <laughs> we have, and, and this is providential, by the way. Idotra, Joseph and Idotris, no, Elias and Idotris Joseph, there we go. This is only going to get worse. Anyway, but they asked me before all this broke out this week, Idotris said, look, we have a ministry to Haiti. And, of course, of course, Elias is from, from Haiti. And he said, she said, can we bring a barrel and set it in the lobby of this church and ask people, to bring shoes for children from age 1 to 12 or 13. Bring shoes, gently used shoes. They said, we don't want money. We don't even want new shoes. Just bring gently used shoes because she, she said, I know you got a bushel full of kids in there and they have to be, you know, growing out of their shoes and put them in the barrel and when the barrel is full, we will take it to Haiti. I think that's a good Christian response, don't you? Pastor Linda, you know, when we had Mennonite World Conference here, Pastor Linda became extremely close with a number of women from Zimbabwe. And she texted them after all this stuff hit the news. And here is how her friend from Zimbabwe responded to, to her. Dear Linda, you have been God sent. I needed to hear your words I've been very confused and lonely after the speeches. 
I could feel hatred coming our way and not sure what people around the world think of us in Zimbabwe. I so appreciate your kindness, dear sister in the Lord. That's a Christian response. I, uh, I may have lost some friends or parishioners today. I hope not. I pray not. But I had to preach the gospel today, all of the gospel today. I must, I must obey Jesus. And for me to have avoided this subject today would have been sheer disobedience on my part and sheer cowardice on my part. So I don't know where all everything's going to shake out after this. But I have to do what Jesus says. And I have to preach the gospel. So here's what we're going to do to finish this service. If you're from Haiti or Africa, would you stand? Would you come to the front and stand in front of the the congregation? And the way we're going to end this service is we're going to sing a final song, and everybody's going to stand after they get up here. And But before you leave this sanctuary, I'd like you to walk by every person standing up front here and tell them you love them, that you're glad they're here, that we are brothers and sisters in the Lord, or give them a hug or a handshake. Uh, whatever you feel like the Lord wants you to do, this is how we're going to end the service, okay? Now, you need to turn around and look that way. <laughs> And, and Lydia, you're going to lead us in singing. Will you stand? And this is how this service ends, is you going by sharing what you need to share with the folks up front from Africa or Haiti, okay? You are dismissed. <laughs>